Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. She was born Elizabeth Mary Jane Cochran in the town of Cochran's Mills, Pennsylvania, back in 1864. The fact that her last name was the same as the town she was born in was more than just a simple coincidence. Her father, Michael Cochran, just so happened to be the wealthiest landowner in the area. The son of Irish immigrants, Michael started out as a laborer and mill worker before he bought the mill and most of the land surrounding his family's farmhouse. From there, he went on to become a merchant, postmaster, and later the town judge. Michael married twice during his life. He had ten children with his first wife, Catherine Mary, and five more with his second wife, Mary Jane Kennedy. That second time around included Elizabeth. When Elizabeth was six, Michael Cochran died. Unable to maintain the land or the house, Elizabeth's family moved away from Cochran's mills, When Elizabeth Cochran reached her teens, she added an E to the end of her last name because she felt it had a more sophisticated look to it. She later attended the Indiana Teachers College for one year, but was forced to drop out because of financial struggles. From there, Elizabeth focused on helping her mother run a boarding house to make ends meet. But this sort of domestic life didn't sit well with Elizabeth. She'd inherited her father's ambition, and she strongly believed a person could rise above their station with enough hard work and dedication. It was while Elizabeth was working in the boarding house that she read a column published in the Pittsburgh Dispatch entitled, What Girls Are Good For, that claimed a woman's place was for performing domestic duties in the home and birthing babies. This really got under Elizabeth's skin. And in return, she penned an angry letter to the editor criticizing their portrayal of women. This impassioned letter so impressed the editor that he not only printed it, but he also offered Elizabeth a job as a columnist. Elizabeth decided to write her column under a pen name, one that she took from a popular Stephen Foster tune. And it's under this pseudonym that most people know her today, Nellie Bly. As a journalist, Nellie was elated to finally have a soapbox from which she could express her many opinions. But the paper's editors held her back by ordering her to focus on quote-unquote women's issues. This, of course, didn't sit well with Nellie, so she headed down to Mexico where she spent five months writing an unflinching series of stories detailing the poverty and corruption she saw south of the border. In 1886, she moved to New York City hoping to further pursue her dream of becoming recognized as a serious journalist. Nellie Bly earned worldwide fame for becoming what is widely considered to be the very first American investigative journalist. Her job would often take her on adventures into exotic and even dangerous locales. Later in her career, she'd become a literal global sensation after reading the book Around the World in 80 Days and attempting to recreate the journey described by Jules Verne's novel in real life. But Nellie managed to beat the journey Verne described by doing it in only 72 days a new world record for a time. But it was one series of stories in particular that really launched Nellie's career and turned her into a household name. 
Back in 1887, Nellie stormed into the offices of the New York World demanding to see the editor. She told him she wanted to write an expose about the immigrant experience in the United States. The editor flatly turned her down, but instead challenged Nellie to investigate one of New York's most notorious mental wards at Bellevue Hospital. Nellie began formulating a plan to get herself committed, although doing so turned out to be surprisingly much easier than she'd expected. She took a room at a cheap boarding house under the name Bly Brown, and from there, all she had to do was begin imitating the behaviors of some of the female residents who appeared to be the most insane. It wasn't long before the boarding home's matron, worried about Nellie's bizarre behavior, called the cops on her. Nellie was hauled before the Essex Market Police Courtroom, where a judge named Duffy promptly pronounced her insane and ordered she be remanded to the care of Bellevue Hospital. She was then placed on a ferry boat and sailed over to Blackwell Island. Later, Nellie would write she met an ambulance driver along the way who warned her this would be a one-way trip and she would never get out of Bellevue again. This was, in fact, a very real concern, considering neither Nellie nor her editors had any clear plan for getting her back out of the asylum after being committed. Nellie took copious notes during her time in Bellevue. Her columns would eventually be collected and published in the book Ten Days in a Madhouse, a slender volume that is still considered a classic in the annals of psychiatry today. The book paints a damning portrait of the way the mentally ill were treated toward the end of the 19th century. Nellie wrote of how 16 doctors were assigned the treatment of around 1,600 inmates, although she never saw them pay most of the patients any attention whatsoever. Many of these inmates were immigrants who clearly weren't mentally ill and had been committed for the crime of speaking little to no English. Nellie witnessed all manner of inhumane treatment during her time in the asylum, from physical abuse by hospital staff to mandatory cold baths, to rancid food, to confinement in tiny rat-infested cells. After several days, Nellie finally dropped the act and tried to convince doctors to release her. But her pleas fell on deaf ears until the New York world finally sent an attorney to demand her release. Two days after being set free, the first of Nellie's exposés was published on Sunday, October 9, 1887, after which Nellie Bly became an overnight sensation. The fallout from Nellie's series of stories was huge. The New York City municipal government was forced to appropriate an additional $1 million annually for the care and treatment of the mentally ill on Blackwell Island. A grand jury was impaneled to investigate the inhumane treatment Nellie described in Bellevue. Within a month, most of the harsh conditions Nellie described were being addressed. The most abusive doctors and nurses were fired. More sanitary living conditions were instituted. Nourishing meals were provided and translators were hired to address the needs of the many immigrants who were being caged against their will. The name Nellie Bly would go down in history as a symbol of the positive effect journalists could have on society. Nellie would go on to write many other crusading articles throughout her career, but it would always be her time in which she pretended to be insane that she would be best known for. But there was one other occasion when Nellie Bly interviewed a woman with whom she had a few things in common. Like Nellie, this woman came from a large family of Irish immigrants. And also like Nellie, this woman proved to be incredibly ambitious. Although this woman took a much, much darker turn when it came to getting what she wanted. Nellie would eventually sit down and interview this woman in, of all places, a mental asylum. 
And Nellie would come away from that interview believing this inmate was also faking insanity for her own purposes. In the fall of 1893, Nellie Bly met with an accused serial murderer named Lizzie Halliday, a woman who committed such heinous and violent acts that the newspapers of the era would go on to dub her the worst woman on earth. I'm Nate Hale, hoping to never earn the title of worst podcaster on earth, and this is The Conspirators. People often noted how there was just something off about Lizzie Halliday, even when she was little. She was born Eliza Margaret McNally in County Antrim, Ireland in 1859. She came to New York State with her parents and nine siblings among the wave of Irish immigrants looking to escape decades of famine and poverty. But as a young girl, Lizzie became known for her violent temper, something that grew so out of control her family was eventually forced to disown her. She was short, but physically strong. She was also highly unpredictable. On more than one occasion, she brutally attacked both her father and her sisters. When she returned home years after being given the boot by her family, only to discover her father was now dead, Lizzie threw herself on his grave and began tearing up the earth with her bare hands. On her own, Lizzie remained uneducated. She also met with constant mockery about her looks. One neighbor complained she had the most repulsive face and most peculiar nose she had ever seen. None of this sat well with Lizzie, and she was often prone to lash out at anyone she felt had crossed her. Once she threw a knife at a young man who teased her. Another time she spat in the face of a little girl who gave her a nasty look. On yet another occasion, while she was working in a bakery, her employer tried to correct her methods, and Lizzie ran immediately to the nearest courthouse and claimed her boss had assaulted her. Lizzie spent much of her youth hustling for jobs and getting married along the way. When she was 15, she married her first husband, an army deserter named Charles Hopkins, who went by the phony name Ketzpool Brown. It was far from a healthy relationship, and the two of them spent much of their time together telling other people they were afraid the other one was planning to murder them. Lizzie had a son with Ketzpool, but this only seemed to set her further into a pit of depression. People who knew her said that following the birth of her son, Lizzie began to exhibit even stranger behavior than usual. She complained to her sister she could hear nonstop singing wherever she went, and she sometimes claimed to see peculiar lights flashing around her. Two years into the marriage, Ketzpool Brown died suddenly. Some reports claim the cause of death was typhoid fever, but as you'll hear, there's plenty of reason to doubt that. Not long after Brown's death, she married an elderly man named Artemis Brewer who also mysteriously died within a year. Husband number three was a man named Hiram Parkinson, who deserted Lizzie after a year. After that, Lizzie married a friend of her second husband, another elderly veteran named George Smith. But just a few months after marrying Smith, Lizzie tried to murder the man by slipping poison in his tea. When this plan failed, Lizzie fled, stealing as many valuables from their home as she could carry. Her next marriage fell apart quickly when her then-husband confessed to her, He had beaten his first wife to death. Fearing for her life, she fled to Philadelphia with her young son. During the winter of 1888, Lizzie stayed at a North Philadelphia saloon under a phony name. During this time, she opened a shop, insured it, and promptly burned it to the ground for the insurance money, destroying several other homes in the neighborhood as well. 
For this crime, Lizzie was committed to two years in the Eastern State Penitentiary. For the first year and a half of her sentence, Lizzie remained a model prisoner. But then, two months before her release date, Lizzie began to act so strangely she was transferred to an asylum, where doctors declared her to be clinically insane. But evidently, this wasn't enough to keep Lizzie incarcerated because not long after, prison authorities allowed Lizzie to walk free after her two months were up. She would later tell a reporter how, after her release, she had gone looking for her son. But the boy, who would have been 12 years old at the time, had vanished. She never saw him again. She made her way to the state of New York looking for work. She met an elderly veteran in Newburgh named Paul Halliday, who had been married before and was the father of six children, one of whom was mentally handicapped. Lizzie told Halliday nothing of her past and instead claimed she was fresh off the boat from Ireland. At first, Halliday agreed to pay her a salary of $40 a month, but before long he realized it would be cheaper just to marry Lizzie than keep her on his payroll. Like Lizzie's prior relationship, it was not exactly wedded bliss. During the spring of 1891, Halliday came home one day to find Lizzie standing over the smoldering remains of his house, upon which Lizzie promptly informed him that Although she had tried to save him, Halliday's handicapped son had burned up in the fire. Later, when they dug through the rubble, authorities found the son's body locked inside his bedroom, a room for which Lizzie possessed the only key. Despite this, Halliday stayed with her. For another month, that is. That was when Lizzie burned down Halliday's barn and mill, stole some of his horses, and ran off with one of the neighbors. She was quickly apprehended and tossed back in jail. She raised such a ruckus in jail, hissing and spitting and tearing out her hair, that she would then be sent to the Matawan State Hospital for the criminally insane. But Halliday dismissed the notion that his wife was insane. Irritable? Yes. With a wild streak? Most certainly. But insane? Halliday didn't buy it. He shared a belief that many people would have about Lizzie, that she was merely faking her insanity in order to avoid criminal charges. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. The asylum doctors held Lizzie for another year before releasing her into Halliday's custody and pronouncing her cured. Paul Halliday and Lizzie remained married for another year, until one day when Paul Halliday disappeared. Lizzie began telling her neighbors Paul had gone away on an extended business trip. But this sounded especially fishy to the neighbors who never liked Lizzie and were often spooked by the sight of strange figures creeping around the farm at night. So the neighbors went to the local justice of the peace and informed him of their suspicions. They searched the farm fully expecting to find a body. What really surprised them was that they found two of them. When the local constable and the neighbors arrived to search Lizzie's home, they discovered Lizzie on her knees scrubbing bloodstains from a carpet. When Lizzie saw the group of men on her doorstep, she shrieked at them to leave her alone. Lizzie then snatched up a board and attacked the constable with it, telling him that she'd cut his heart out if he came any closer. The men shoved Lizzie out of the way and continued to search the farm, 
Their search eventually led them to the barn where they discovered the bodies of two women lying under a pile of hay. They were later identified to be Margaret and Sarah McQuillan. If you research the story of Lizzie Halliday, you'll find differing accounts of her actions during the days leading up to her arrest. But one that gets repeated often is that on August 30th, 1893, Lizzie hitched a horse to a wagon and headed to the home of a poor farmer named Thomas McQuillan who lived 23 miles away. There she hired the farmer's wife Margaret and her 19-year-old daughter Sarah under the guise of being a boarding housekeeper named Smith who required some live-in help. The two poor women jumped at the stranger's offer of $2 per day plus room and board for their services. Margaret and Sarah accompanied Lizzie back to the Halliday farm. That night as the two women slept, Lizzie chloroformed them, then shot them through the chest with her husband's revolver before dragging their bodies into the barn and concealing them in a pile of hay. Lizzie denied knowing where the bodies had come from, although everyone noticed how oddly she began behaving upon their discovery. She picked nervously at her clothes and claimed there were bugs crawling on her. The constable tried to get her to look at the bodies, but she couldn't seem to focus on any one thing. He arrested Lizzie and she was hauled off to jail in Burlingham, but that still left the question of what happened to Paul Halliday. Everyone expected the body they would find to have been his, but Paul was still nowhere to be found. A couple days after Lizzie's arrest, one of Paul's surviving children, who wasn't satisfied with the search the police had conducted, snuck back into the farmhouse and began poking around for himself. He stumbled across a couple of loose floorboards in the kitchen and pried them open. Much to his horror, he discovered his father's badly decomposed corpse buried underneath. He had multiple bullet wounds in his chest and he'd been struck in the head by a blunt object so severely it knocked one of his eyes out of its sockets. On September 8, 1893, Lizzie Halliday was placed in a jail cell in Monticello, New York. By now, news of her crimes had spread far and wide. Morbid souvenir hunters went back to her old house in Newburgh and stripped it of everything they could get their hands on. Hundreds of onlookers waited outside the Monticello jail, hoping to catch a glimpse of Lizzie as she was transported inside. Lizzie liked to play to the crowd, and when she saw the people gathered for her, she'd begin acting erratically and screaming at the top of her lungs. Many people who knew Lizzie while she was incarcerated came to suspect her insanity was all just an act. To many witnesses, Lizzie seemed just a little too insane. She would often burst in incoherent babbling and ear-splitting screams. She tore her clothes and hair, ripped blankets into shreds, threw her food, and would sometimes be seen carrying on conversations with no one around her. But she also only appeared to act this way when she thought she had an audience. Newspaper editors couldn't seem to make up their minds about Lizzie's mental state one way or the other. On September 12th, the New York Times published a headline that read, Mrs. Halliday, not insane. But on November 7th, they changed their story and published an article that now said, Mrs. Halliday was insane. Back in the late 19th century, there was a general sense among the public that anyone who tried to plea insanity in court was just faking it to get out of trouble. The insanity dodge was something that a lot of people believed was simply a last-ditch effort shady lawyers used in order to get their clients to walk free. But this perception was far from the truth. In fact, the insanity plea was only used in a very limited number of cases, and among those, it succeeded only rarely. One well-known individual who wanted to see for herself if Lizzie Halliday was faking her insanity was none other than legendary muckraker Nellie Bly. 
After launching her career with her hard-hitting exposés about the mistreatment of patients at Bellevue Hospital, the now well-known reporter followed that up by publishing an article exposing New York's secret underground trade in buying and selling black market babies. For her next big story after that, Nellie managed to score a two-part interview with Lizzie Halliday in her cell. It took a while for Nellie to get Lizzie to open up about the bodies found in her home. At first, she only wanted to talk about the state of her farm after hearing that souvenir hunters were tramping all over it. When Lizzie finally agreed to speak to Nellie Bly about the murders, she spun a hard-to-believe tale that she and her husband Paul had been eating dinner along with the Hallidays. When a mysterious gang of intruders burst into the room and chloroformed them all into unconsciousness. Lizzie claimed she had no memory of what happened after that, and that she was just as surprised as everyone else later when she woke up and the women's bodies were found inside her barn. Nellie Bly remained naturally skeptical about this version of events. She asked Lizzie that if she was telling the truth, why, when she came to, didn't she notice the bloodstains or bullet holes in her house? But Lizzie just shook her head and said she hadn't noticed anything out of the ordinary. This was actually the same sort of defense Lizzie had offered years earlier when she was arrested for arson in Philadelphia. Back then, she told the police that she had been present when lamp oil was dumped throughout her shop and set ablaze, but she'd had nothing to do with it. And instead, she was too afraid of the real perpetrator to try to stop them. During her second interview, Lizzie changed her story yet again, this time leaving out the part about the chloroform. Now she said the gang forced her to wait outside where she could only watch helplessly from the window as they murdered her husband and the McQuillans in cold blood. After two frustrating days with Lizzie, Nellie Bly finally snapped at her and said, I believe that you alone and unaided killed your husband and the McQuillan women and buried them. I don't believe you were ever insane one moment in your life and that you are the shrewdest and most wonderful woman criminal the world has ever known. Nellie pushed harder, trying to get a confession out of Lizzie, but Lizzie simply smiled at her with that odd, crooked smile of hers. Then she shook her head and told her she had developed a headache and didn't feel like talking anymore. Before she got up to leave, Nellie asked one final question. Did Lizzie in any way repent her crimes? Lizzie just gave her another one of her strange-knowing smiles and said, God will send you back to me. Nellie wasn't exactly certain what she meant, but it disturbed her nonetheless. Although newspaper articles continued being published debating whether or not Lizzie Halliday was using the Insanity Dodge or not, one sentiment that remained constant was that, sane or insane, the woman was truly evil. Newspapers referred to her as a multi-murderess, arch-murderess, and even the worst woman on earth. One newspaper article even went so far as to blame Lizzie Halliday of being the most famous serial killer in history, Jack the Ripper. One widely circulated newspaper story said, Recent investigation shows that Mrs. Halliday is in all probability connected to the Whitechapel murders. For it has been proven that she was in Europe at the time of the murders and often refers to the murders when she is in possession of her mental faculties. There are, of course, several problems with this story, though. One, there is no evidence that Lizzie was ever in Europe during the time of the Ripper murders. Nor does the timeline even remotely line up with the time she was known to be in America. Not only that, but the only reason Lizzie appears to have ever mentioned the Whitechapel murders while incarcerated was because reporters kept trying to get her to admit she was Jack the Ripper. Now, whether Lizzie Halliday was actually insane or not is something that remains open to debate. It's easy for us to look back now and play armchair psychiatrist. 
Many descriptions of Lizzie's odd behavior line up with the textbook definition of schizophrenia and even psychopathic behavior. But at the same time, many witnesses from the late 19th century described Lizzie's behavior as being too over the top. Like something someone who had only had a vague notion of what insanity looked like would do. The hysterical shrieks, the violent attacks, and the way she calmed down when she thought no one was looking all appeared like an act to many observers. It didn't help that all the public debate about Lizzie's mental state also gave way to wild speculation about what really made her tick. Much of the speculation was often sexist in nature, or shaded by the public's vague notion of what constituted madness. Some people speculated Lizzie only acted insane whenever she became pregnant and miscarried. Some claimed she must have had a secret lover who really committed the murders. Someone she was covering for because a mere woman would never have been strong enough to have committed all those murders on her own. Still others claimed Lizzie herself was a member of the mysterious roving gang of thieves and murderers she referred to in her interview with Nellie Bly, and the rest of the gang was still out there somewhere plotting their next crime wave. But the people who believed Lizzie acted alone in murdering Paul Halliday and the McQuillans, as well as a number of her previous husbands, came to think of her as little more than a savage beast in human form. During the late 1800s, the thought that a woman could have carried out such brutal murders was considered unimaginable. Most accused female murderers were thought to use poison to kill their victims, but shooting and bludgeoning people to death? That was only something a man could do. During her time awaiting trial, Lizzie grew increasingly violent. Whether this was all just an act to aid her insanity defense is something that's impossible to determine. But during the weeks leading up to her court date, Lizzie attacked the sheriff's wife, went on a hunger strike, and tried to set her jail cell on fire. At one point, she tried unsuccessfully to hang herself in her cell. Five days later, she smashed a window and tried cutting her throat and wrist with a shard of glass. After that, the guard shackled her to an iron ring in the middle of her cell floor to prevent her from harming herself or others. Lizzie's trial began in Monticello on June 17, 1894. The prosecutor attempted to establish that money was Lizzie's motive for murdering Margaret and Sarah McQuillan. Thomas McQuillan tearfully identified a set of rings that had belonged to his murdered daughter. Lizzie's defense admitted to pretty much everything. Yes, the gun had belonged to Lizzie's husband, and yes, the rings found at the scene belonged to Sarah McQuillan. But Lizzie's attorney, George Carpenter, tried to explain away the bloodstains found on the carpet by saying that was Lizzie's menstrual blood, and that she wasn't very hygienic around the house. He maintained his defense that Lizzie was innocent by reason of insanity. Carpenter brought in an asylum superintendent and several doctors to confirm Lizzie's madness. They testified to having personally witnessed Lizzie chatting with invisible specters in her cell. She even attacked one of them with the lid of her toilet. They also described how difficult it was to hold a conversation with Lizzie and that she would often break off and give nonsensical responses when asked simple questions. The prosecutor brought in doctors of his own who claimed Lizzie was clearly faking her insanity and not only that, but she was really overdoing it as well. In the end, the jury sided with the prosecutor's version of events, and the insanity defense was rejected. Lizzie Halliday was found guilty of three counts of murder in the first degree and sentenced to death by electric chair. It was the first time in history a woman had ever received such a sentence. But the rampant sexism of the age might have also helped save Lizzie's life. Because immediately after the judge handed down this death sentence, a small public uproar began that this was far too harsh a punishment for a woman. Within days, people began petitioning the New York governor 
to appoint a commission to look more closely at Lizzie's sanity. By July, the remarkably named Governor Roswell Pettibone Flower appointed a trio of doctors to fully assess Lizzie's mental state. The doctors took into consideration the lack of any rational motive for the crime since the McQuillan women were basically destitute, and the rings found at the scene were practically worthless. It didn't seem like a logical act to go to all the trouble to bring them back to the Halliday farm to murder them when there was no real financial gain to be had. When the doctors interviewed Lizzie, they noted her strange behavior. She allowed flies to crawl over her face without swatting them away. She drooled constantly, and often babbled the number 13. She stuffed torn bits of fabric into her mouth and nostrils. She seemed to think there was a river running just outside her cell door. When a doctor pricked her with a knife, Lizzie didn't flinch. The doctors ultimately came to the conclusion that Lizzie appeared to lack the mental capacity to tell the difference between right and wrong. Because of this, they declared her clinically insane. As a result, Lizzie's death sentence was commuted and she was instead sent to the Matawan State Hospital for the criminally insane. At first, upon arriving at the asylum, Lizzie continued raving about bugs crawling all over her and muttering incoherently. But the superintendent informed her that if she wanted to be treated kindly, she needed to knock it off and behave herself. Surprisingly, Lizzie complied. Lizzie's behavior changed dramatically during her time in Matawan, and for a while she became a model patient. She cleaned herself regularly, she stopped shrieking at people, and even started doing chores around the hospital. Reporters who stopped by to see the worst woman on earth were surprised by how calm she had become. There was one incident where Lizzie and another patient named Jane Shannon snuck up and attacked a young attendant named Kate Ward. For this, Lizzie was sent to solitary confinement, and by the time she was let out, she was back on her best behavior. After that, Lizzie Halliday pretty much faded from public memory. There were plenty of other salacious crimes being reported as time went on. Lizzie Halliday would die quietly in the asylum on June 28, 1918. But, in the years before her death, there remained still one other incident of note in the life and crimes of Lizzie Halliday. By the time Lizzie was in her 40s, she had grown accustomed to life in the Matawan State Hospital. She'd even become so docile and reliable, the attendants had granted her sewing privileges, which included access to a basket full of fabric, thread, needles, and scissors. During this time, Lizzie had also befriended the 24-year-old head attendant of the ward, a woman named Nellie Wicks. But in the fall of 1906, Wicks told Nellie that she was going to be leaving the asylum to study nursing. Lizzie was heartbroken. Nellie was her best friend in the asylum. She begged the young woman to stay, and when that failed, she even threatened to kill her if she ever left. Although Lizzie hadn't had a violent outburst in years, she would still occasionally mutter a death threat here or there, but most people just learned to ignore her. That is until one morning when Lizzie followed Nellie Wicks into the bathroom, clutching a pair of scissors she'd snagged from the sewing basket. Wicks didn't notice Lizzie had crept up behind her until it was too late. Lizzie bashed Nellie Wicks in the skull and knocked her to the floor. Then Lizzie snatched up the woman's keys and locked them both in the bathroom from the inside. She then pounced on top of Nellie and stabbed the young woman to death more than 200 times. When the coroner later asked why she had done it, Lizzie just gave one of her odd, crooked smiles and said, Because she tried to leave me. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening.
I wanted to let everyone know that although I do have a Patreon account set up because of what we're all experiencing now because of the COVID-19 pandemic, I've decided to pause billing anyone for the month of April and perhaps longer. We're all in this together and it's the least I can do to try to make our lives a little easier in this troubled age. Even still, I do have a few new supporters who have signed up recently and I want to thank. Thank you so much to Tanya, Lisa, and Mark for signing up. And thank you to Brad and Terry for increasing their pledges during this time. You're all amazing. Just to let you know, even though the Patreon account won't be charging anyone, I still plan on posting new patron-exclusive mini-episodes as my way of saying thanks. One free way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And while you're at it, tell some of your friends and family who are probably stuck at home with nothing to do about us as well. And encourage them to review us on Apple as well. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, we're also available on most of your favorite podcast apps. You can also listen to our entire back catalog of shows on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. If you're looking for us on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Feel free to reach out to us and let us know how we're doing. Or if you feel like it, let me know how you're doing during this difficult time. I'd like to know you're okay. Thanks again for joining us, and I hope you'll be back next time.